Last week, I noted that Daniel 1 closes by setting up the rest of the book in two simple ways. First, we read, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Though taken from his homeland, taken from Judah, Jerusalem, in the year 605 B.C., as a captive of King Nebuchadnezzar, the tease here in mentioning the Persian King Cyrus is that Daniel's 70-year ministry will see him outliving Babylon. Amazingly, astoundingly, Daniel, the prophet, will serve in the courts of not one, but two different world empires, Babylon and Persia. Secondly, we're also told that all four of these young men Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, these young men that we've been introduced to in the first chapter, we're told that God gave all of them knowledge and skill. God blessed them incredibly. But of the four, Daniel, we're told, is kind of unique of the set in the sense that he's also given understanding in all visions and dreams. As we're about to see in Daniel chapter 2, God will speak to and through the prophet in some awesome supernatural ways. So let's dive right into our text. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. We're told that in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. The timeline of the event recorded for us in Daniel 2 places us specifically in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now historically, we know that the ancient Babylonian way of of delineating time stated that kind of the first year of a king's ascension was never really taken into consideration. It was kind of like year zero, meaning that the second year is in actuality the third year. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because Daniel chapter 1 has closed with Daniel and his three friends recently concluding their three years of training. Now, in setting the stage for what is one of the most extraordinary and stunning prophetic chapters in all of the Bible, our passage opens telling us that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Literally, what this says is that Nebuchadnezzar had multiples of the same dream, likely occurring on successive nights. We're also told in kind of the lead-in that this dream ends up being so troubling to the king that he's having a difficult time sleeping. Keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar was in all likelihood one of the most powerful men to have ever walked planet Earth. By a young age, he had conquered the known world. He had built a city believed to be impenetrable. And he rules his empire with complete and total and absolute authority. And yet, this man, this king, who possesses everything with nothing or no one to fear, now finds himself troubled tormented by this reoccurring dream he keeps having, night after night after night. The the word we find here, troubled, it means to thrust 
or, or to beat down persistently or to impel. Nebuchadnezzar, he has no idea what this dream means. But he has, in some weird way, a sense, a profound sense, that the dream is important. That's why it keeps being repeated. Nebuchadnezzar believes that, that this could very well be some type of divine message from beyond. He wants to know what it means. Now with these things in mind, we continue to verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. In the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, there were several classifications of advisors, each specializing in different things. You had the magicians. This collection of individuals were not magicians as we think of them. Magicians who performed, you know, illusions, Michael, or tricks using sleight-of-hand techniques. No, 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 no. These magicians, in the original language, they were engravers, or as we might better translate, scribes. Their primary job for the king was to keep a written record, a history of public affairs and official decisions. Another class of advisors were the astrologers. Again, the translation here uh, lends to some confusion. These individuals really had nothing to do with, with reading the stars, horoscopes and whatnot, you know, to determine the future. No, instead, the word means that they were, they were conjurers or enchanters. The astrologers, th their unique specialty was communicating with the beyond, with the spirits of the dead. We're also told that there were the sorcerers. These were men who practiced witchcraft, sorcery. They used drugs to peer into the supernatural realm, to tap in to things happening around. Additionally, we have another group known as the Chaldeans. Now, there's some debate as to who these men actually were, but most scholars see them as, as probably just being the academics of some of the noble families throughout Babylon. Men of power, men of prestige, men of influence. In verse 27, not to get ahead of ourselves, but kind of round out the, the topic, we have two more groups mentioned. We have the wise men, the magi, who are considered to be the experts in history, mathematics, science, astrology. You also had the soothsayers, who were the priestly, religious class there in Babylon. This word soothsayer, it can be translated as the cutters. Now that's kind of a, an, odd, an odd term, but if you recall, Elijah's cook-off with the prophets of Baal. What were the, the prophets, the priests of Baal, what were they doing to try to, to get Baal to, to step into the, the void and, and interact with them? They were cutting themselves, the cutters, the soothsayers, the priestly tribes, and this pagan cult. Again, the situation we have. A tired, troubled, probably groggy, grumpy king with absolute authority, giving a command for all of his advisors to come immediately to the palace and meet him. He calls an impromptu cabinet meeting. And once everyone had gathered, verse 3, the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. 
Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, the language of the day. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Seems reasonable. Now, I mentioned in our outline to the book of Daniel that because the subject matter of this chapter and several of the chapters to follow will outline for us the course of world events that are not just relevant to the Hebrews, but really to the entire Gentile world. In verse 4 of Daniel 2, the language, it, it switches from Hebrew, Daniel's native tongue, to Aramaic, the tongue of the world. Aside from a very small section recorded for us at the end of Daniel 4, which will be written in Chaldean, the text will remain in Aramaic all the way to the end of Daniel chapter 7. In fact, it's only until Daniel chapter 8 verse 1 that the language uh, of record switches from Aramaic back to Hebrew. The king. He's desperate for an interpretation to his dream. This dream that has been troubling him. He's gathered everyone there in the throne room and the Chaldeans step forward and they request, King, we're here to help. We'll do what's necessary. You share with us the details of the dream and we'll advise you accordingly. We'll tell you what you need to know. Well, verse 5 presents a wrinkle. So the king answered, he said to the Chaldeans, My decision's firm. It's absolute. It's unwavering. If you do not make known the dream to me, and its interpretation, well, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, in order to ensure the interpretation of his dream it was true, that he could trust the interpretation not to be fake news, Nebuchadnezzar, he does something really cunning. He commands this group of advisors to tell him not only what the dream meant, the interpretation, but to also relay the details of the dream itself. Like the king here figures that since these men claim to have supernatural connections, this wasn't too big of an ask. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, if the dream is right, I can trust the interpretation is right. Furthermore, there's, there's no question stakes here. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar puts the stakes about as high as you can get. This is not like an optional thing. Like these guys didn't have uh, the option of saying, yeah, we, we, just, we can't do that. No, 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 no. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, listen, if you get this right, you get the dream and the interpretation, if you nail it, man, no worries. I'll give you gifts and rewards and great honor. But if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation. If you fail, well, Nebuchadnezzar promises that he'd cut them into pieces and then turn their houses into ash heaps. Now, knowing the challenge before them, verse 7 tells us, so they answered again, and they said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. This, Nebuchadnezzar, this is how it's always worked. But the king answered and said, I know for certain that all you're trying to do is gain time, buy time. Because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. No need to repeat it. 
For you have agreed, or your plan is, to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Or basically what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you guys are going to lie, you're going to run me in circles, hoping that in the process of time, I'll cool off, calm down, and change my mind. But I'm not going to. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar continues, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. Now, now obviously, (laughs) all these cool cats and kittens find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place as they're standing there before King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, they've been put on the spot. And they do their best to create a little wiggle room. Duck and dodge. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's firm. He's not going to budge at all. He's insistent. If you can't tell me the dream, I can't trust that you're giving me the right interpretation. I'm not playing the game. Nebuchadnezzar's approach here, no question, it's provocative. But you know, it's really hard to argue with his logic. He knows this dream is important. It's messing with him. It's disturbing him. It's troubling him. It has uh, created waves in his own spirit. God is trying to reveal something to him. He just doesn't know what. His advisors have always claimed to have this portal into the supernatural realm. So from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, what he's asking them to do is really nothing more than they claim the ability to do. It's reasonable. Verse 10, But the Chaldeans answered the king, and they said the the Chaldeans seem to be kind of acting as the spokesman for the group. They said, There's not a man on earth who could tell the king's matter. Like, what what you're asking is insanity. Therefore, no king or lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, for this reason, we continue. King Nebuchadnezzar was angry. Bad thing. This word angry, it means he's enraged. And we're told he's furious, or he becomes filled like wroth with anger. So he gives the command. All right, this is how you guys are going to play it. I told you. So he gives the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the entire collection of his advisors, he gives a death sentence to. And we read that the decree goes out. And they begin killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Nebuchadnezzar is deadly serious. Like so, so deadly, so much so, that the decree goes out. He's had enough. And he starts making good on his promise. Literally, they begin killing the wise men. They begin rounding up the wise men of Babylon, executing them. Tragically, while it is very unlikely that Daniel and his companions had been in the original meeting, they've now been caught in the crossfire. Like By pure association, a warrant has been issued 
for their arrest. Verse 14, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he's the man charged with the task. And he answered, Daniel answered, he said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? What's going on? So Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, brings him into the loop. So Daniel goes in and he asks the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Word reaches Daniel that the wise men of Babylon are being systematically rounded up and executed. And he's alarmed by this. But notice what he does. Does Daniel run and hide? Not at all. Instead, he intentionally seeks out the very man who has been charged with rounding everyone up and killing them. This man named Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Then we read, with counsel and wisdom, I'm sure, Daniel, in this exchange with Arioch, he's like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why so urgent? Like, it's, it's clear these men know each other, and that Daniel has developed some type of a good rapport with Arioch. So much so that Arioch, he brings him into the loop. And in response, Daniel, he goes into the, the palace, enters the throne room, and he boldly petitions an audience with the king. We're not given any specifics of the exchange itself, other than the fact that Daniel, his request of the king is to give him time, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, by this point, he's refused to give time or such an allowance to anyone else. But he changes his mind when it comes to Daniel. Like, there's something about Daniel, even now, building off of, of chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, this, this, young, this young man's different. There's something special about him. So he wouldn't give anybody else time. Daniel comes in, petitions, makes a request, and he's given, likely, the evening. Verse 17. So Daniel went to his house, and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three amigos, his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of of Babylon. They have an incentive here as well. Then we're told that the secret was revealed. Revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel, and we can imagine his three friends, they blessed the God of heaven. The fate of these men lies squarely at the feet of the sovereign God they served. Like The only way that anyone was going to be able to know the dream, as well as its interpretation, would be through a divine uh, intervention, a divine revelation. Now, While our text here, it doesn't specifically use the word pray or prayer. The activity is, is clearly implied. Especially in this phrase, that they sought the mercies of the God of heaven. Realizing what's at stake, knowing the repercussions, Daniel and his companions, they're on their knees in the late hour, seeking the God of heaven. Imagine that, that moment, that picture. Again, 
They're seeking mercies from the God of heaven. Make note of that. Like these men are not on their knees pointing fingers at God. They're not making demands. Instead, what's what's being described is that with an abundance of, of reverence and a sanctified humility, they're petitioning God's mercy in the matter. God, give us mercy. Well, grace occurs when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is found when God withholds from you what you do. These men know that apart from God's intervention, they were in big, big trouble. Amazingly, as they're on their knees praying to the God of heaven, we read, then the secret was revealed to Daniel. And how was it revealed? In a night vision. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had received the same revelation through a dream while he was sleeping. But in contrast, Daniel is given a vision at night of the dream and its interpretation. This Aramaic word, vision, a vision can be translated as an appearance. Daniel is very much awake, very much conscious, when God enables him to see the dream with his mind's eye. And then something amazing happens. We're told, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The idea behind this word blessed, it it, it means in the ancient language to kneel down. Like it implies worship. Like you know you're in a good prayer meeting when it transforms into a worship service. Verse 20, so Daniel answered and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and might it have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Daniel's exaltation of thanksgiving to the God of his fathers, it manifests from two different things. First, it will become apparent, especially in retrospect, that Daniel's praise, like what he praises God for, was largely influenced by the actual interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Like, as it pertained to this crazy world and the future of what was to come, God had granted Daniel the ability to see his hand at work behind the scenes. Like, Daniel will realize that there is nothing taking place, occurring on this earth that that happens without God's approval. Yes, there are times that things might appear to be out of control and even lend to kind of a fatalistic outlook. But Daniel knows that God, 
that it was God alone who changes times and seasons. That it was God who removes kings and God who raises them up. (laughs) You know, since we're approaching an election this fall, I should add, this also applies to presidents as well. God is in control. The second motivation for his praise is that knowing the stakes, Daniel is naturally grateful that God had answered their prayer. Like his life was on the line. Same with his friends. He was going to have to stand before Nebuchadnezzar when the sun rose. But he praises the Lord that God had gave him wisdom. That God had gave him might. That God had made known, revealed to him the king's demand. Like I hope you know that the God we serve, the God of our fathers, is not only knowable, but he wants to be known. Do you know that? That God deeply desires to speak with you, His children. That God not only wants to speak, wants to reveal, but He wants to articulate vision and purpose. Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, the thoughts that I think towards you are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And God wants to reveal His future plans for you. Amazingly, God wants His people. He wants you and I to know the future, specifically so that we might then be prepared for what's on the horizon. Verse 24, therefore, Daniel went to Arioch. So he has the dream, the interpretation. He goes back to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king. I will tell the king the interpretation. Daniel's like, Arioch, I've got this. So Arioch, he quickly brought Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. And he said thus to the king, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now that's not exactly how it all played out, but there's no point in, in arguing. He gets Daniel before King Nebuchadnezzar. You've got to imagine that, Dan, that Daniel, he exhibited probably a lot of confidence in order to get Arioch to intercede in such a way. Verse 26, so the king answered, and he says to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, he says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? I just want to be clear. I, I don't just need the interpretation, I need the dream. So Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and he said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, They can't declare it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. Don't miss what Daniel does. It's so wise. What he does in this situation. Since the Lord had given him the dream and the interpretation... Daniel is determined to keep his proper place by giving 100% of the credit, 100% of the glory to the Lord, to to, to God. Like in response to Nebuchadnezzar's question, are you able to make known to me the the dream and its interpretation? Daniel replies, eh, kind of. I'll give it to you. 
as long as you know that it's not me. There's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Like Daniel wants it very clear that all he is, all he's operating as, is a mouthpiece for God to speak through. Now Nebuchadnezzar, even from the beginning, he had sensed in his spirit, so it made him troubled and anxious, that the dream was significant. Now he knows why. Daniel says that through the dream, God had made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days, or maybe better translated, in the end of days. Let's work our way through the passage before we we kind of get into the nitty-gritty. Continuing in verse 28, Daniel says, Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And this is in the present tense. After your kingdom. Now note, Daniel, he's been asked to give the dream and the interpretation. But he also sets the stage for what motivated the dream itself. He takes this one step further. King, you were on your bed. You were thinking about things. What would happen after your kingdom? Continues, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Or God has basically granted your request to know the future. As for me, Daniel has to reiterate, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's been revealed because for our sakes, we need to make known the interpretation to the king. We're going to die otherwise that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Now, let's look at the dream. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching. So the dream. And behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. Its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold. Its chest, arms, of silver. Its belly, its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet were partly of iron, but partly of clay. And you watched while a stone cut without hands struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, they were crushed together and became like chaff for the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them found. And the stone that struck the image, it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36, this is the dream. There's confidence here, isn't there? Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Daniel doesn't wait for Nebuchadnezzar to confirm or respond. He says, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over all. You are this head of gold. But, verse 39, 
after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Verse 41, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, that kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with chromatic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with chromatic clay, they will mingle with the seeds of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come pass what, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Through this dream, we understand that God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar, and really by extension, everyone that would ever read this passage, the overarching story in future destiny of what we would call the kingdoms of man. God illustrates this narrative using this great image of a man. Now with the benefits of hindsight, I want to quickly and systematically break down the succession of kingdoms being articulated to Nebuchadnezzar in the dream. First you had the head of gold, Daniel uh, 2 verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings, the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, he's given them into your hand, has made you ruler over all. And then very clearly stated, you are this head of gold. Like fulfilled by King Nebuchadnezzar in particular. The head of gold you can see and understand to be the Babylonian Empire. Now, there were other nation states that existed before Babylon. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, just to name a few. But Babylon was unique. Babylon became the first superpower. And Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. My guess is one of the main reasons the dream so freaked out Nebuchadnezzar was that the head of gold was actually his. This statement, you, O king, are a king of kings it's noteworthy the reason it's noteworthy is that it, it contrasts what will be later said of jesus in the book of revelation that jesus he's not a king of kings he is the definitive article the king of kings and lord of lords for the reasons mentioned at the end of last week's study babylon's direct 
connection to Babel of old. It presents her as the head of all of the kingdoms of men that would stand as a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. So first you had the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. This was followed by the chest and arms of silver. Verse 39, But after you, after Babylon, shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours. You know, as great and as, as powerful as Babylon would be, she would fall in the year 539 B.C. to a kingdom that was comprised of two different arms. You had the Medes and the Persians. And separate, they were inferior to the Babylonians. But it would be through their alliance, through their connection, that they would rise to world prominence. Following the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, we then have the belly and thighs of bronze. Second half of verse 39. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze. And what's unique? This kingdom shall rule over all of the earth. Again, the hindsight of, of history. In 331 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire would fall to Alexander the Great. Though she was not as imposing as those who came before, for the 150 years that the Grecian Empire reigned, they would be the first to rule over the entire world. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Now we've gotten down to the legs of iron. Verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes that kingdom, this fourth will break in pieces and crush all the others. In 146 B.C., the Greeks would fall to a new Roman Empire, as illustrated with these legs of iron. The Roman Empire would be so mighty, so strong, so tenacious, that their kingdom would break into pieces and crush all others that came before. Rome would dominate the planet like no other before her. Now, now before we get to the toes and the feet of this iron mixed with clay, regarding this interesting progression of metals, did, did you notice that as we were working down this great image of a man, each section is described with a different, a different metal. You have the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. And there are two interesting things we, we can drive from this. What makes that interesting? First, the metal being used for each section was in actuality unique to the empire it represented. And this is one of the things that makes being able to identify the empires so easy. Like You can study this more on your own. But Babylon was known as being a city of gold. In defiance of that, the Medo-Persians would use silver as their currency. The Greeks, if you know your history, they ushered in what was known as the Bronze Age. Alexander and his armies, they would use bronze for their armor. The Romans would bring about the Iron Age. Really fascinating. Now aside from this, there is also a correlation to the metal's inherent value 
and the power structure within each empire. Like in Babylon, the king's authority was absolute. But in Persia, the king's authority would be, would be reined in, checked, by agreed upon law. We'll see this later in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar could make a decree and then change his mind. Nebuchadnezzar was not bound by the laws that he made. But the Persian Empire, once the king made a decree, the king was then bound by the decree. We go from gold to silver. In Greece, we find the first democratic structures being established. Lesser power. Spread out control. And in Rome? Well, if you know anything of Rome, power was centralized in the people's representatives. Now, as you peer down this great image, from the legs of iron, you come to see a final kingdom of man that would possess, undoubtedly, a remnant of Rome. But this kingdom would be severely weakened as illustrated with its feet and toes being made up, yes, of iron, but a mixture of clay. Now confirmed by the last 1,500 or so years of human history, the Western world that emerged following Rome's implosion has always been divided and fragile. Two characteristics. Western nations tracing their lineage back to Rome. They've attempted on numerous occasions to unify under one banner. But all too quickly, those alliances falter. Like In fact, this final kingdom of man would project a strength without there being any real substance to it. Now, while the parts of this dream that have been fulfilled are incredible to consider and should really deepen your, your trust in God's Word being divine. Daniel writing this, 600 B.C. It's this future aspect of this revelation, what hasn't been fulfilled, that really demands our careful consideration, our attention. Look back at the dream itself. As Nebuchadnezzar is admiring this great image, which we know represents the kingdoms of man. We read how a stone, unique stone, a stone which had been cut without hands. The idea is that this stone has a supernatural origin. It comes down, it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. Not the head of gold, not the the chest and arms of silver, not the belly of bronze, not the legs of iron. No, it struck the feet, this last kingdom. And then it broke it into pieces. And the result, not just the, the iron and clay, but the bronze, the silver, the gold, they all end up being crushed together. The whole image comes tumbling down. It's crushed. So finally, that it became like chaff for the summer threshing floors. And the winds carried it away so that there was no trace of this image found anywhere. And then, in place 
of the image, the kingdoms of man. Nebuchadnezzar's dream concludes with him seeing that stone that struck the image now becoming this great mountain and filling the whole earth. According to the interpretation of that scene, provided for us in verse 44, we know that at some point during this future final kingdom of man, a supernatural event of divine origin will take place on this planet. Look at it again, verse 44. In the days of the kings, of these kings, of this final kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. A kingdom in place of those. This kingdom will never be destroyed. This kingdom will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the others and stand forever. Now prophetically, what we have being described here, and we could set a whole study aside to unpack this, but this is the flyby. What's being described is what we know to be the second coming of Jesus. Not the rapture of the church, where the, the church is called to heaven, but the moment when Jesus returns to this earth, where his foot steps down onto the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in two. This is the second coming, where Jesus puts, puts an end to this last kingdom. And in doing so, puts an end to the kingdoms of man. And in place establishes on this earth the kingdom of God where Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Regarding Jesus being the stone. Again, interesting. A stone that's not cut by hands. Jesus' divine origins. His divine purpose. The stone. Now, the stone being Jesus. I, I want you to consider something very interesting that the apostle peter says of jesus in acts chapter 4 peter's giving this amazing sermon an incredible sermon and he says this he says let it be known to you all to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead by him this man who who just been healed he stands before you whole then check this out this is what peter says this referring to jesus is the stone which was rejected by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone he's quoting directly from from psalms 118 verse 22 peter wraps up he says nor is there salvation in any other there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> so here's his reaction. He falls on his face, prostrate, before Daniel. And he commanded, as he's laying there, coming off his throne, throwing himself on the ground, he commands that they should present an offering an incense to Daniel. And the king answered Daniel and he said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, 
and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, as he had promised. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. He made him chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel also petitioned the king. And the king set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three amigos, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. What a moment. I mean, really, what a moment. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet, a man with absolute authority, falling on his face before a Hebrew captive. Like, not only does his actions here confirm that Daniel's nailed the details, right? He nailed the dream. But what it also confirms is that Daniel's interpretation, his explanation for what the dream meant, what God was trying to say, appears to have satisfied. It struck a chord. And this deeper longing within Nebuchadnezzar. You know, in closing, there are really two fundamental lessons that we should derive from this chapter. First, notice again, Daniel concluded The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Before Nebuchadnezzar responded, before he said a thing, God had spoken, Daniel had listened, and his confidence would not be shaken. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. You know, in light of such a holy text, and how much of this text, again, written during the Babylonian Empire, so many years before, in light of how so much of it has been fulfilled, I want you to know you should be confident, assured, that God has a plan for this world. Do you know that? that there is an expiration date to this fallenness, to this spirit of Babylon, to the system, to the kingdom of men. A day will come. It will come where Jesus returns and crushes the kingdoms of man and replaces it with His kingdom, the kingdom of God, where He rules with peace and equity. A kingdom in which there will be no end where you and I will rule and reign. <laughs> Honestly, it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. Now the idea of this passage is that there's so much of this prophecy that's, that's been fulfilled that you'd be like, oh my goodness, this will happen too. But whether you believe it or not, doesn't matter. The dream is certain. God's Word has declared what God plans to do, and no one can change it. Its interpretation is sure. Whether you want to believe it or not, the day is coming on the horizon when Jesus will return to this dust bowl 
and judge the earth and usher in his kingdom. What makes Daniel 2, I mean really, from the, the, the big picture perspective, so incredible and relevant is that if you read chapter 2 and you believe chapter 2, you take to heart chapter 2, what it means is that you, my friend, don't miss it, you know the future. You know the future. Sure, we don't know the when, but we do know the what. With zero certainty, with zero uncertainty, with confidence. We don't know when, but we know what. We know what will happen. And you know, knowing the future should have, especially if you believe it, a tremendous impact at how you live in the present. Does it? Which, which leads to kind of the second big point of application. As a citizen of that future kingdom, living presently in Babylon, knowing full well with confidence that our king, his arrival is imminent. We're not citizens of this world. We're ambassadors for Christ Jesus. With that in mind, like never forget in Babylon, knowing the future, you have a job. That you have a role, an important one. Now, to, to unpack that point, what that job is, I want you to consider something. Consider how it was that Daniel, who is kind of an illustration of this for us, how was Daniel used by God to make an impact in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar? I think we learned something here. Recapping. Nebuchadnezzar receives a word from God. He knew it deep down. He believed God was trying to, to communicate something about his future. And what troubled Nebuchadnezzar so deeply, what made him anxious, was that he lacked an interpretation. He needed to know. He had God's word, but he didn't know what it meant. He didn't know what God was trying to say to him. Enter Daniel. You see, Daniel's fundamental role in Nebuchadnezzar's life was really, if you boil it down, to be an interpreter. Like Daniel was placed in Babylon to be used by God to help this pagan king understand what God was trying to say to him. And you know, Nebuchadnezzar He'd been let down sorely by the brightest, smartest, most intellectual men Babylon had to offer. God has revealed something to me. I need to know what it is. You need to tell me. Give me answers to my questions. But they couldn't. Nebuchadnezzar knew that all they'd peddle were lies. Falsehoods. They wouldn't give him the truth. In the end, all Daniel really does is he points to the God in heaven who reveals secrets 
He says, Nebuchadnezzar, yet God has spoken. And I'm here to help you understand what God is saying. That's it, man. There's nothing about me that's special. There's nothing that makes me smarter than anyone. There's nothing that makes me more special than anyone. I'm just here as an interpreter, man. I'm the go-between. I'm just the mouthpiece. Nebuchadnezzar. There's a God who speaks to men. A God who's knowable and wants to be known. You know, we live, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say this, we live in interesting days. And I believe, even before the coronavirus, but it's definitely been, been sped up by it, I believe deep within my heart that there is a, a stirring taking place in our culture. The, the lost souls around us, by what is happening, they are troubled anxious. Their spirit knows something is going on. They don't know our God, but, but there's a force at work. And they believe, I, I'm convinced, that this is not random, but something is trying to be articulated. That this coronavirus meant to be a wake-up call. That God is trying to speak and get through. That He's revealing Himself. But so many in our culture, they remain confused. They're troubled. They're sleepless. They're anxious. They realize there's something going on. I just don't know what. What's going on? What does my future hold? What's the plan? And just like Nebuchadnezzar you know what those people need more than anything else? Daniels. Who will interpret God's word. You see, when it comes to the divine, it's true what the Chaldeans and the, the wise men said. When it comes to the divine, when it comes to the spiritual, no one, can make sense of these things. Except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. But what those men didn't know, and what we realize, is that there is a God in heaven who donned human flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is truly the God of gods. The Lord of kings, the revealer of secrets. You have answers. You, you have questions. God has answers. God is not wanting to withhold the truth from you. God wants to be knowable and known. What's more, Christian? He has made known to you and I what will be in latter days how this all plays out, what the end looks like. He's revealed these things to you and I to impact the way we live in the present so that we might in turn be interpreters. In this world, making sense of what's going on for those so desperate to know. 
So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.